Well, this morning, we are in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I hope you've kept your Bibles open. We'll be looking at them here in just a moment. As I was looking at this text this week, I was reminded of these analogy tests that we would take when I was in elementary school and in middle school. These tests that say, you know, A is to B as C is to D. These uh, things that kind of... uh, these equations that teach us the relationship and correspondence between different objects in the world around us. So, for instance, uh, you might would have a a one tested this way where uh, it would give you the first half of the equation. A hard hat is to a crane uh, as a cowboy hat is to a blank, and you would have to fill in the blank with a multiple choice, and the right answer would be like horse or something like that, right? So these analogy tests are helpful because they teach us to think in terms of relationship and correspondence, uh, of how things in the world relate to one another. Analogies are helpful for us to make connections in our minds between various parts of a whole concept or, uh, or a mechanism in a way that better allows us, uh, allows us to better understand the, the entire concept or the entire reality that we are considering. And so here in Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews is going to be making some of these analogies, uh, specifically between Jesus and Moses and the people of God that they serve and, the, and their role in the way that they serve the people of God. This text this morning is going to show us that Jesus is greater than Moses because even Moses' ministry was preparing the people of God for Jesus. And the main idea that I want for us to grasp this morning as we work through this text is this, that Moses was great, but he was nothing compared to Jesus. Moses is great, but he is nothing compared to Jesus. And as we grapple with this idea, I hope that we would come to understand the role that Moses, that great leader of God's people, leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, the role that Moses played in in God's redemptive plan, and to, in understanding the small role that Moses plays, to instead look to the one that Moses looked forward to, to look to Jesus and to seek our salvation in him alone. So keep your Bibles open and look with me at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, where we read this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold uh, hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Again, Moses was great, but he was nothing compared to Jesus. As we come to this text today, we see uh, the author of Hebrews inviting us to think about Christ, to think about Jesus in comparison to Moses. Why is he doing this? Well, remember that last week at the end of chapter 2, we saw how the author of Hebrews is demonstrating that Jesus is the king of our redemption, that he's the brother of the redeemed, that he's the the priest of our redemption, the the one who mediates those things for us. And as we think about those roles in relation to God's people, king, priest, and brother, we start thinking about, well, who else could fit these roles in different ways? You know, David was a king, Solomon was a king, Aaron was a priest, uh, you know, Joshua was 
this kind of you know, kingly person as he's leading the people to take over the, the promised land of Canaan, but he was also a brother with them. He's a people of Israel like anybody else. And as we think about all the different folks and characters that arise in the history of God's people, we come inevitably to Moses, who seems to fit this picture of king-priest-brother Uh, in a way that might be similar to Jesus. Moses was a kingly figure in that he was the one who led the people of Israel out of slavery in in Egypt and into the, uh, or toward the end edge of the the promised land. Moses was a kind of priestly figure in that it was he who was uh, making intercession for the, the people of God to God, and he was the one that was relaying God's word to the people. And he was also a brother in the sense that he was one of Israel, like all of the rest of them. And so as we're thinking about Jesus as king priest and brother, it would be natural, especially for a Jewish audience like those who first heard the or read this letter uh, addressed to the Hebrews, to be thinking of Moses in their minds as they're thinking of this kingly, priestly, brotherly figure. There's so much correspondence between Moses and Jesus that at this point, the author of Hebrews wants us to, wants his readers to uh, consider not Moses, but to consider Jesus. And that's exactly what he calls us to do in verses 1 and 2. Consider Jesus. We finally get the address to the people who are receiving this letter. Have you noticed that the author of Hebrews hasn't referenced those people that he's writing to yet? He says in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Here, referring to them as those who have tasted the grace of God in Jesus Christ, those who have come to trust Christ as King, as Lord, as the one who has given his life for their forgiveness of sins, the one who makes them holy and brings them into community with one another. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, and then he gives them this command. It's the only imperative, the only command in these six verses. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. That word consider means literally think deeply about, meditate upon, give serious consideration to Jesus. And this is, in fact, what much of the rest of the book of Hebrews will do. The author of Hebrews is going to lead his readers, lead us to contemplate and to meditate upon the realities of Christ and all that he has done for us in his sinless life, his death on the cross for sins, and in his resurrection from the dead. The subject of contemplation, the thing that we are to consider, the author of Hebrews shows us, is Jesus, right? The Son of God, the only God-man that he has introduced to us in the previous two chapters uh, of this sermon-like letter that we have been uh, studying. But here he refers to Jesus as two things in particular, as the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's maybe a strange way for some of us to think about Jesus and how we're to consider him, to relate to him as apostle. Normally that word apostle is a word that we apply to people like Peter and Paul and John, those disciples who were sent out by Jesus to begin preaching the gospel and founding the church. In fact, that word apostle means literally one who is sent or the sent one. Well, Jesus is an apostle in, uh, in the sense that he is the one who is sent by the Father. He's the Son of God, sent by God the Father to do the Father's will. And so in a very strict sense, Jesus is an apostle. He's one who is sent on a mission, mission by God the Father. 
we're also to consider him who is our high priest. And we looked at this quite a bit last week, and we'll consider it more in the following chapters of Hebrews, how Jesus is the mediator of our salvation, the one who perfectly relates man to God and God to man because he is fully divine and fully human all at once. He is uh, that one intermediary who makes right, who reconciles God and sinful humanity. We are to consider him the apostle and high priest of our confession, the author says, meaning that he is the apostle and high priest that we confess as Lord. It is Jesus who who we confess our faith in. It is Jesus who we confess as King of kings, Lord of lords, the, the, the God of our salvation, the one who died for our sins. And then... The author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus, you holy brothers, think about him, meditate upon him, the one who was sent and who mediates uh, our faith, whom we confess as Lord. Consider him in comparison to the faithfulness of Moses. He says, consider him who was faithful to him who appointed him. So Jesus being faithful to God who appointed him, just as in the same way as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. We are called by the author of Hebrews to consider Jesus in comparison to Moses. Not that Moses is bad and Jesus is awesome, because Moses isn't bad. In fact, the author of Hebrews is going to go to fairly great lengths to demonstrate that Moses is actually quite good. He's a good character that we should consider in our faith. This is not a contrast of the failure of Moses to the faithfulness of Jesus, right? A a, a contrast is like comparing a mountaintop to a valley, two opposite things, right? Contrasting the height of the mountain to the lowness of the valley. But a comparison is like comparing the height of Mount Everest to the height of the Sandias, right? Two similar things, but one is far greater in comparison. So it is with Jesus. Jesus in this scenario would be like the Mount Everest of our faith. And Moses is like the, the Sandia mountains, right? Impressive, but not nearly as impressive as Jesus. This is a comparison of the great faithfulness of Moses to the supreme faithfulness of Jesus. Moses was great, yes, and the author of Hebrews wants us to respect uh, Moses as a servant of God and faithful to all that God had called him to do, but Moses was nothing in comparison to Jesus. So we are to consider him, consider Christ. He who is, as verses 3 and 4 show us, not a house, but the builder. This analogy of Jesus being the builder of the house that is uh, uh, exposited for us in these verses speaks to the relationship that Jesus has to his people. Jesus is, God is, because Jesus is God in flesh, the founder and builder of his people. We saw even last week in chapter 2, Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, God's people were marked, uh, characterized by their worship of the one true God and by the holy conduct that they uh, comported themselves with in the world. They were governed by the law of God that was delivered through Moses. And so as the people of God, as God's house in the Old Testament, they were governed by the law of God, which uh, set boundaries around their relationship with God and how they were to act in the world. 
Now, we can speak of the people of Israel in the Old Testament as God's house, uh, but we could also think of God's house as being the tabernacle or the temple that we see under the Old Covenant. Uh, These were houses of God uh, in a sort of way, not that God dwelt in those places, in the tabernacle or in the temple, right? Not that God was confined to those locations, but that His presence dwelled there, and that's where He interacted with and and, and received the worship of His people. In the New Testament, however, God's people, His house, are marked not by uh, just worship of God and holy conduct, but they are marked by and characterized by the righteousness of Christ that is given to them at the first moment of faith. So the Old Testament people were known to be God's house, the people of Israel known to be God's people by keeping the law and by worshiping God the way that he called them to worship him. And now in the New Testament, in light of Jesus and and the new covenant that we have by his death and resurrection and faith in him, now God's people, God's house, Christians are characterized by uh, the righteousness that God gives us. Not because we keep the, the law, not because we, we live up to a certain code of conduct that God gives to us. No, we are known by the righteousness that Christ has given to us as he presents us blameless to God the Father. In fact, uh, one of the apostles, Peter, a disciple of Jesus, writes in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5, through 5, he calls the people of God, Christians, the church that he's writing to, a house. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, speaking of Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These words, a spiritual house, holy priesthood, offering up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. These are all similar ways to how the people of God in Israel, in the Old Testament, uh, are referred to in the book of Exodus. They are to be a kingdom of priests and a royal, uh, a royal nation. Uh, they are built upon uh, the foundation of God's law. But now that Christ has come, we build ourselves upon Jesus himself, who is the personification of God, who is the God in very flesh, the one who reveals the Father to us. So we see that Moses himself even is not the house, but a member of the house. Right? We're not to consider Moses as, uh, as the builder of the house or the contractor of the house, the one who designed the house, but as a member of it also. Moses is a man like you or me. And even though Moses delivers the law, which is sort of like blueprints for the house, uh, uh, the people that God is building, he is not the designer. He's not even the, the contractor who puts the house together. That person, the one who designs the house, the one who builds the house, the one who determines all the the, the angles and placement of all the walls and the foundation of the house is the only God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we come to Jesus not as a house, but as the builder, right? In the same way that, that, that we don't respect a, a, a work of great architecture just on its own. We don't, we don't give praise to the work of architecture. We give praise to the architect who designed it, to the contractors who built it. So that is Jesus. When we look at the people of God, we don't praise just the people of God. We don't praise Moses even for all of his work as a member of God's people. But we praise the one who builds the house, Jesus. Because he's not the, just the house, but he is the builder. He is the, the great architect of our faith. He is the one who puts together around himself the people that he's called to himself.
We're to consider Jesus not as a house, but as the builder. We're to consider Jesus not as a servant, but as the son. Verses 5 through 6 spell this out for us, saying, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Here in these verses is a very subtle play, a very subtle reference to a passage in the Old Testament, particularly Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Now, they're in the context of Numbers. That's uh, a, a book in the first, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Uh, you probably skip over it or skim, skim through it very quickly in your uh, regular daily or yearly Bible reading. But there in Numbers chapter 12, as the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, Moses' brother Aaron and sister Miriam begin to oppose Moses. They have conflict with Moses because they are jealous, even frustrated about the kind of access that Moses has to God and the role that he is playing as sort of intermediary between God and the people. So they begin to oppose Moses. And for their opposition, God speaks harshly against Aaron and Miriam. And in Numbers 12, 6 through 8, God says this, "'Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses.'" He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, as he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And now here, in chapter 3 of Hebrews, the author says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, referring specifically to God's declaration that Moses was his servant. Again, Moses is not here spoken of uh, 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 poorly here in Hebrews, but he's being spoken of, he's being considered quite highly. Moses was a faithful servant of God. His faithfulness, though, is faithfulness as of a servant. Now, there are usually about three different words that are used for servant in the New Testament in the original translation of, uh, or in the original language in which it was written in Greek. There's a word doulos, which means uh, like bond servant or like a household slave. Now, slavery in uh, Roman times was different than the sort of chattel slavery that we uh, consider took place uh, here on the, uh, on the continent of North America so many hundreds of years ago. But uh, there's another word for servant, which is diakonos, which is the word that is translated into English as deacon which uh, most strictly means table waiter, but in the context of the church means those who are serving the physical needs of those who are part of the family of God. And then there is this third word that is used for servant only in this place in all of the New Testament, and it is the word therapon, from which we get words like therapy or therapeutic. It's a servant who works for the benefit of the master. And this is the same word that is used in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, when, uh, when, speak, when God speaks about Moses being his servant in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's spoken of ther- as therapon, a servant, in that regard, in Numbers 12, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and here now in Hebrews as a therapon again. See, Moses' role in redemption, Moses' role in God's plan to save sinners from their sin is a role of great importance because he is, one, a messenger of God's redemption. That's part, part of how he serves God. 
He brings the message of God's salvation. He speaks about the hope that is coming for Israel in the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and the prophet that is coming after him that is greater than him who will come from among the people. Moses serves the purposes of God in redemption by being a servant in the house of God. He stewards, he he manages, he delivers the law of God and instructs the people of Israel in the holiness of God and their constant need for reconciliation to God. Moses is a great servant in the house of God. He is a messenger and a servant, but he is not the message of redemption. You see the difference between a messenger and the message? Messengers are important because they bring a message. It is the message that comes from the messenger that is of greater importance. In fact, the, the messenger can come and go. That doesn't matter. The message never changed. And so Moses is, Moses is not the message of redemption. He's just a messenger of God's salvation. Neither is the law itself that, that Moses delivers as from God. The law is not the message of redemption. We are not saved from sin by keeping the law. Moses is not the messenger of redemption. He's not the builder of the house. He's just a servant within it. These roles, the message of redemption, the builder of the house, don't belong to Moses. They belong to Jesus, the author of Hebrews is showing us. Jesus is the message of hope that Moses is speaking about, even even from a distance, even from a a long ways away historically, uh, Moses is speaking about and pointing the people of Israel to Jesus. It is Jesus that we confess as Savior, as Lord, as Messiah, as Redeemer. It is Jesus that we look to as the sinless Son of God who gave His life uh, in substitute for us and raised his life again from the dead, that by trusting him, we have the hope of redemption and resurrection also. And Jesus is not the uh, servant in the house, but he's the son and the builder of the house who rules over it, who has authority over the house, the one who designed it, the one who built it, and the one who has authority and direction over it. He is the builder of his own house of which we are a part, even as we cling to the confident expectation that we have of all of the promises of Christ to us. Moses is great, but Jesus is far greater. This is what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand, that as great a hero of the faith as Moses is, he pales in comparison to the one who is the object of our faith, the founder of our faith, the one who builds the house, the one who is himself, the message of hope and redemption. What does this mean for us that Moses is great, but Jesus is greater? The simplest way that I can begin to apply this to our lives today is this, that the way that we come to Jesus is the way that we live for Jesus. The fact that Jesus is greater than Moses Right? That Jesus is the message of our redemption and the founder of our faith means that because he is who he is, means that the way that we come to him is the way that we must live for him. And this has two implications for us that I think will, will help to spell out what I mean in this, in this form of application. The first is this, that we must seek our redemption through Jesus only. We must seek our redemption through Jesus only. The way that we come to him is by faith in him. Now look, we're not likely to worship Moses today, to look back at the Old Testament and to fall on our knees and worship of even this great leader of God's people. 
And really, neither were the first recipients of this sermon-like letter uh, addressed to Jewish-believing Christians in the first century, the first recipients of Hebrews. Even though they were Jewish, they were not likely to worship Moses as a god or worship Moses as a savior. But we are often prone to think that our relationship with God and our salvation that comes from God are contingent upon good works that we do are contingent upon the things that Moses brought to the people, specifically the law and that code of conduct that governs them. We are often prone to think that our relationship with God is contingent upon the moral lives that we live. In 2016, Lifeway Research conducted a study that found that 52% of Americans believed that the good good deeds that they do contribute to their salvation. 52%, that is a majority of Americans, believed that the good things that they do, the moral way that they live their lives, contributes, adds to, brings to the table something in in making them right with God. And in that same study, they found that 74% of evangelicals, that's nearly three quarters of gospel-believing Christians like you and me, believe that they must contribute of their own effort to personal salvation. Three-quarters of Christians believing that I have to bring something to the table in order to receive redemption, salvation from God, something other than faith alone. The truth that Scripture teaches us time and time and time again and is before us once more, even in light of the greatness of Moses, is this, that we cannot be saved. We cannot be redeemed. We can't be rescued from our sin. We cannot come to Christ through moral living. Paul says that even for all of our moral living in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't come to God on the basis of our good works. We don't prove ourselves pleasing to God by the moral ways that we live our life. No, we come to God solely as a gift of His grace through faith alone in His Son, Jesus the Christ, whom the author of Hebrews is calling us to consider, the one sent by God, the high priest of our confession. The truth is that God's people have never, ever been saved by their works. They have never come to Christ through the law. The law has never brought anyone to uh, to, to faith in Jesus or to a, a place of redemption. God's people have always been saved by their faith. And it begins with the, the first of all the Hebrews, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where we read that Abraham believed God. He believed the promise of God that God was making to him. And that belief, that faith was credited to him as righteousness. We're not made right with God. We don't come to Jesus. We don't receive redemption on the basis of our worthiness before God, but on the basis of our total and complete trust in the promise of God fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus himself demonstrates that this promise of faith is fulfilled in him in John chapter 3, verse 16. This very familiar verse that most of us have memorized where Jesus says that God loved the world in this way that he sent his only son, so that whoever believes in him, that is, places their their faith and trust and hope in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. 
Jesus doesn't say that God loves the world in this way, that he sends his one and only son, that, that whoever cleans themselves up enough, whoever acts morally enough, who has, whoever has enough good deeds in the bank can then add faith in Jesus and then be trusted. No, all of that, all the good works, all of the, 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 the moral deeds, all of that stuff falls by the wayside. None of that is even part of the equation when it comes to salvation and redemption, rescue from sin and right relationship with God. It comes by faith. It comes through belief in Christ. And to believe Christ is to believe what the scriptures say about him. And to believe in him this way, to believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true, to believe Jesus the way scripture presents him to us is to worship him. We cannot believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he's God in very flesh without our hearts being stirred and warmed to worship him as the one who created us and who loves us and who gives his life for us. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we are reminded that Jesus is worthy of glory and honor and worship, far more glory than even Moses, great man of God as he was, worthy of far more honor than David, the man after God's own heart and king of Israel was, worthy of worship in the way that no other human being has ever been been worthy of, uh, of ascribing worth to. Jesus surpasses all humanity in every one of these ways because he is God in flesh and salvation is found only in him. The law of God, those those commands that God gives to his people are to be followed by his people as they reflect the holiness of God who gives the law. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of God's law is not to make impossible demands upon his people in order that they would somehow be saved by keeping them all. No, the purpose of the law is to reflect the very holiness of God and the constant, uh, constant temptation that we have to rebel against God's authority and his divinity and his rule over our lives, to the, the, the constant temptation we have to move into unholiness. The law shows us God's holiness and our sinfulness. The law never takes care of sin for us. It shows us our deep need for a Savior who can rescue us from the sin that we're constantly reminded of, even as we keep the law. And that person to whom the law points is Jesus. We seek our redemption, our salvation, not through good works, not through doing the things that Moses, uh, the the law that Moses delivered to his, to to the, the law of God that Moses delivered to his people. We seek our redemption in Jesus only. And then second, we must always, in light of this, put right worship ahead of right living. To believe in Christ is to worship him. To believe in him as Lord, to to trust him as scripture leads us to trust him, is to worship him. And we must always, in light of the worship that we have for Jesus, put right worship ahead of right living. Sometimes, however, as Christians, we fall into the trap of thinking that now that I've trusted Jesus... I've given my life to him as Lord, that my life with God is now all about doing the right things. I I, I came to salvation by faith, and now I I walk in salvation by works, by, by continuing to prove myself pleasing to God. But doing the right things, friends, even keeping the law, following the Ten Commandments, from the motivation of guilt or obligation to to please God somehow, Uh, doing it 
from any other sense of legalism. Like, I have to live this way now that I've been saved by God in order to prove my worthiness is to do the right thing with the wrong motives and ultimately to do the wrong thing. In our lives with Christ, we come to know the builder of his house first. And then we live in the house. We live as a member of Christ's people as he has intended. We come to know the son and then we serve him in relationship with him. Right living without right worship makes you a legalistic Pharisee. That is to say, doing all the right things without proper respect for Christ and the the rescue from sin that he gives us, without worship for Jesus and love for Christ, all the right things that you do only make you someone who is entirely legalistic and and absolutely uh, just unapproachable and and, uh, uh, intolerable to other people who are trying to understand grace. We're not saved by grace through faith in order to live out the rest of our lives in moral obligation to God to try to keep Him happy so He doesn't get angry about our sin again. Dear friend, you who are tempted to do good deeds now that you have known Christ in order to make God happy or to keep Him pleased with you, you have misunderstood grace. We are saved by grace through faith not in order to do good works to prove ourselves to God as worthy objects of His salvation. The very fact that God offers us salvation through faith in Jesus demonstrates that He has already deemed us worthy to receive it. You have nothing to prove to God. And in fact, all your good works, all your good deeds, all your moral law-keeping in the vein of trying to please God through somehow uh, pleasing Moses, so to speak, All of that amounts to nothing. Now, I'm not saying we don't ever do good things. I'm not saying that after we come to faith in Christ that we give up living in a moral way. Right living without right worship makes us legalistic, but right worship without right living makes you a hypocrite. Right? So as we come to faith in Christ, as we worship Jesus, as we love Him, we, we live out of that worship in such a way that that demonstrates that our lives have really been changed by the one that we worship. So we don't do moral things. We don't do good things. We don't live in a Christ-like way to prove ourselves worthy to Jesus. No, we live that way because we desire to be made in the image of the one that has saved us, the one that we worship. Consider Jesus, our author says. Contemplate Jesus. Meditate upon Jesus, the one who is greater than Moses, not because he's a messenger of salvation, not because he's a servant of God, but because Jesus himself is the message of salvation. He's the object of our hope. He's the one who's building the house. Consider Jesus. Meditate upon his supremacy. Contemplate his divinity explore his majesty, glory in the redemption that he brings, worship him in all the truth that can be known of him. And then and only then, when all of our affections are set on worshiping Jesus and all of our efforts in this life, every act that we commit flows from loving worship of him. Only then will we do what is right for the right reasons. The way we come to Jesus 
is the way that we live for Jesus. We come to Jesus out of hearts of worship, and we live for Jesus, lives that reflect uh, the worship that, that we've already begun to, to express in our own hearts. We seek our redemption through Jesus only and not through the law. And we always put right worship of Christ ahead of right living for Christ because it is our worship of him that drives our living. Moses was great, but Jesus is far greater still. So consider Jesus, dear friend. Consider him who gave his life in your place, for you who did nothing to deserve his sacrifice in your place. Consider him who gave everything for your salvation. Worship him, love him, adore him, and then live lives that bring glory to God in all that you do, that shine, the, that shine a light upon the grace and mercy and compassion of God in the way that you live your life, not fulfilling some religious legalistic obligation, but living a life of joyous repentance and faith-filled hope and love and action in the world around you, out of a heart that has truly been changed to love and worship Jesus, the Christ, the author and founder of our salvation. Consider him. Come to him with hearts of worship. Live for him out of a desire to worship the one who has saved you. Let's pray together. God in heaven, you who have written the script of our redemption, our rescue from sin that comes through your Son who you sent to stand in our place on the cross to absorb the penalty for our sin. God, we worship you and praise you for redeeming us this way. It sounds foolish to our human ears. And yet, by your Holy Spirit and through your word, you have revealed it to be true. And so this wonderful mystery that Jesus stands in our place leads us to worship him. Lord Jesus, we come to you as the only sinless son of God about whom Moses spoke and toward whom even Moses was looking and you who he was anticipating, we look to you as a fulfillment of all God's promises to his people. And we worship you for the way that you have brought us to God, for the way that you have made us righteous in his presence. And not by any merit of our own, but entirely through your own righteousness given to us as we simply trust you with all of our brokenness, with all of our faults, with all of our sinful ugliness, simply entrusting our lives to you and asking that you would make us new, that you would make us whole, that you would reconcile us to God. Jesus, we worship you. What a wonderful Savior you are. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen.